Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Prime Minister Trudeau's under fire once again for Ottawa's response on the housing crisis. We'll discuss that and more in the world of Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. We cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini's weekly Washington report. And today, well, is the last day of the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. It's not goodbye. It's only until next time. We'll talk about that as well. Coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We had a lot to talk about today because of what's going on on both sides of the border, and we look forward to those conversations, including what's happening here in Canada with uh, the, the crises that we're talking about, uh, economic and otherwise. Uh, the, the story we're hearing today is that the Bank of Canada may actually increase uh, interest rates again because inflation may be popping up. That's a problem. Then, of course, there's a housing crisis. Uh, the federal government is facing mounting pressure from its political opponents and Canadians themselves, actually, to address the country's housing crisis. In his new role as Housing Infrastructure Minister, Sean Fraser says that he's hoping to restore affordability to housing. Uh, the idea uh, should not be so strange that a, a young person who's got a job should be able to afford a home they can live in for themselves and their family. Uh, that was the way things were for much of my life growing up in small town Nova Scotia. Uh, and that's what we hope to get back to. It might take a bit of time uh, for us to solve the housing challenges that are before us. Uh, but man, is it a challenge worth solving. Well, let's use that as a jump-on point for our discussion about uh, Canadian politics. And to that, and always a pleasure to welcome back to the program, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Professor at the Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University. Laurie, a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Bill. Let's let's talk with housing, first of all. It's it's something that it is obviously important to each and every one of us. We're inundated every day with stories of people that say, I just can't afford to buy a house. Most people have almost given up on that. Uh, it didn't help that the Prime Minister's comments the other day uh, suggesting that uh, it's not really a federal responsibility. I think I know what he was trying to say, but it, it just seems to be throwing gasoline on the fire, doesn't it, when he makes comments like that? Well, that's it. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear um, a politician, especially the the Prime Minister, um, say, kind of back away from, it sounds like a backing away from something that is absolutely a critical issue for so many people who either, um, you know, are worried that they can't find a home at all, or they can't afford the one they have, and not seeing a way for that to get better. And for the federal government, I mean, yeah, sure, you can start you know, drawing, you know, constitutional lines and saying, well, this is really not the federal government's responsibility. This is the province's responsibility. But you know what? We need someone to solve this problem. And if the federal government has this leadership role, they have the federal resources, they are now, they've now appointed um, a minister of housing at the federal level. And it's just people are just waiting to say, what 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 is next? What is this minister going to do? You know, this is one of these times, I guess, when we're crying out for cooperation between levels of government. Yeah, as you say, not drawing lines and saying, "Well, that's their job, not ours." I mean, it's 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 everybody's job in Ottawa, Queens Park, and just about every capital right across the, this country, isn't it, to try to do something about it? Well, that's it. And there's so many there's like there's so many of these policy challenges that we could put the same framework on, whether we're talking about housing, long-term care. Healthcare, childcare, dental care, the affordability crisis, whatever you want to put, you know, insert whatever wicked mess you want to put in there. All of it comes down to some level of collaboration and cooperation between the levels of government. There's none of there are none of those issues that can be solved by either government alone. And so 
again, like there's no point in saying, well, you know, pointing figures, that's your job, that's your job, come up with something. What I'm wondering is if they're going to do a kind of similar, uh, if the electorate gives them the time to do it, I, I wonder if if they're going to come up with a similar approach to what they've done in like ch- in childcare, for example, where it's like, here are some cr- conditions, here's some criteria, if you meet those criteria, you get an envelope. Um, is that the way the housing minister is going to go about maybe a, a bigger role for the federal government on the supply side of affordable housing or affordable or housing more broadly? And you're right. They have set a precedent here, haven't they, Laurie? Mm-hmm. Uh, the child care program, I guess, is a great example of that. So, so is their their long-term care facility uh, checklist of things that the standards, basically, care standards for long-term care homes. That's technically not a, a federal responsibility, uh, but there was a need there and they stepped up. I, I, I can't understand why the prime minister is seemingly backing away from that. History tells us that the federal government did play a larger role in, in, in affordable housing years ago, but they abdicated that responsibility. And it's not just, you know, the liberals and conservatives just kind of backed away from that altogether. Uh, and now that's come back to bite them. Well, sure. And there's exam- other examples in other policy areas of that too, right? Where the federal government, because of, you know, f- fiscal reasons, uh, desire to be t- to be more fiscally prudent, or because the s- situation compelled it at the time, the federal government has contracted their role, and then there was an absence of funding, and then the program suffers, and then, you know, then we enter into this really useless back and forth about which party was at fault and which level of government was at fault, and then we end up in a crisis. So you can say the same about healthcare, you can say the same about long-term care, and now here we are with housing. So whether they decide this is going to be the time that they are going to, because it seems like the liberals are, are trying to create this sort of strings attached approach where they do these bilateral back and forth with the provinces and say, you know, here's what we want. If you do these things, then you get the money. And then they try to focus on the voter saying, put, you know, if if you don't get what you want in this area, blame the province because we gave them the money. Now, whether that back and forth crap is going to matter to anybody at election time, that's different. But we can also see um, Pierre Polyev is saying, I've got an idea. I'm going to incentivize in the building of certain kinds of housing around uh, transit stations, for example, and we'll penalize the municipalities funding if they don't do it. So like him or not, he's, he's throwing out an idea. Yep, exactly. Speaking of Mr. Polyev, uh, we talked about this, I think it was last week, uh, about the ad campaign that's ongoing right now, uh, you know, trying to, I guess, redefine to a certain extent, Mr. Polyev, uh, because he just doesn't seem to be catching on uh, with, with Canadian voters. Uh, uh, you know, he's ditched the glasses. He doesn't wear the tie anymore. He's he's every man, I guess, trying to be. Uh, mm-hmm. But the story over the weekend about uh, how he is once again seemingly uh, em- embracing some of these conspiracy theories that are, are to do with things like the economic forum and, and things of this nature. Uh, you wonder, uh, you, you can take the glasses off Polyev, but I mean, Mr. Polyev is still Mr. Polyev. And, and I think a lot of his language is still frightening to an awful lot of people. That's it. And I, it's a, a strange approach he's taking, right? Where it seems like he's trying, maybe it's not strange, he's trying to do a whole bunch of things at once and they don't necessarily all align. So yeah, I mean, obviously he's he's gone through something of a physical makeover where he's dressing differently, he's showing up differently. The tone of his voice is different. He's trying to, you know, people have described it as softer. He's taking more questions for the media. Clearly the version of him that won the leadership the party is concerned that that's not the version that's going to win the country. And they should be concerned about that. And maybe this was their plan all along, that they knew that version of Pierre Polyev that there was quite a lot of support for within the party. Sure, they were going to win the leadership on the first ballot. But how do you then create a person who can win a general election? And so I guess this is part of that process. But he's saying these things like 
you know, on the one hand, you can in in one day read and and watch all kinds of messaging from him that seems to be kind of at odds with one another. So he's got these ideas about we're not going to succumb to the elite globalists. We're not going to Davos. We're not going to the World Economic Forum. We're going to bring common sense home or whatever it is he's saying. And then the next thing is, you know, he's playing with his kids. And the next video is a totally pragmatic idea about how to build housing around transit stations, right? Like it's, it seems like those messages are not all geared toward the same people. I think he's trying to be mainstream and extreme at the same time. So I'm not sure if this is going to work, but he's giving it a shot. Well, I guess when people are upset, and God knows they're upset these days about a number of different issues, uh, it's it's tempting, I suppose, for elected officials, especially ones who are aspiring for head office like like he is, uh, to, to 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 play to people's fears. Uh, and he certainly played mm-hmm. that card, hasn't he, Laurie? You know that they're, they're coming after your jobs, they're coming after your your personal identity, your bank accounts, and you know calling people like uh, the, the prime minister and others uh, that that do work with the World Economic Forum, you know, elitists. Uh, his, his former boss, Stephen Harper, attended that forum all the time. Matter of fact, addressed it, I think, once or twice. Uh, is he an elitist? Uh, is, is that what yeah. Mr. Polyev is implying? I, I, I don't know that people are actually taking, as you said, that that statement and then juxtaposing it against some of the other statements of Mr. Polyev. The common thread seems to be that uh, that everybody out there is bad except me, and, and I don't know that people are going to buy that. <laughs> I think you're right, actually. And I think it's you know, it's, it is this kind of fear mongering. It's um, trying to make people afraid of what's coming down the line if Polyev is not elected. And even something like getting people to be concerned about a digital identity. He's, he is assuming that there's a constituency of support for him who's very concerned with big brother in government and doesn't want the government to be following you around and knowing what you're doing. And I mean, none of us wants the government to be careless with our privacy. Of course not. But many of us can also see the value from a citizen's perspective, from a, a client perspective, from a, from a services perspective of something like a digital ID and making government more digitally savvy. This government has been, you know, allegedly working on that and they've, they've got a minister of citizen services now, the digital focus and all that stuff. So it, if Polyab is saying we're not going to go down that road, that would mean significant you know, like a, a lot of what's being done now, I think, in terms of, again, making the federal government and services more digitally savvy, that would have a serious policy implication and a service implication if Polyev is saying we're not going to do it. Well, especially, and, and I know with the story was covered here about some of these statements he was making about the economic forum, uh, a number of poli-sci folks and a number of your colleagues have weighed in on different newscasts and, uh, and newspapers over the weekend. Uh, and and as, as a couple of them say... <laughs> You know, these are not new theories. The conspiracy theorists have been out there for quite some time. Uh, but for somebody who's actually running to be the prime minister of the country to be espousing these is, is quite frankly, concerning to an awful lot of them. Uh, you know, our friends to the south elected a guy like that a number of years ago. How did that work? I- well, that's it, right? And, like, I think I've said this to you before. Like, I always wonder when Polyev says something like that, does he mean it? Like, is that what you, Polyev, is that what you really think? Like, I think Pierre Polyev believes that we should uh, do a better job of aligning housing and transit stations. I don't have any doubt that he means that. But when he speaks this way about, you know, digital ideas and these and the global elites, and he's plucking the threads of these conspiracy theories, I'm like, okay, do you actually believe what you're saying? Or are you just saying this because you think somebody out there believes it and they're probably going to come out and vote for you because you're saying it? And you're kind of hoping that the other people who are going to vote for you because of your housing strategy are not listening to you 
when you're talking about the World Economic Forum as though it's a big bad thing. Like, it seems to me that he's hoping people have short memory, selective hearing. They're going to find something in in his bag of tricks that they like, and they're going to ignore the rest of it. And so maybe people are fed up enough with Justin Trudeau that this strategy will work. I don't know. Well, and there's, there's certainly a case to be made for that based on not just the number of the, in, that we've seen in the polling, but but people's attitudes. But does does he really think in his in his heart of hearts that, uh, the, the, you know, the farmer in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, or the, the, the person here in southern Ontario, for that matter, uh, gives a damn about the World Economic Forum when they can't afford a house and they can't afford rent? That's it. Yeah. And so I think that, I mean, that type of message, if Polyev is able to create a, a more nuanced, like to me, he comes across too strong. Like it's too, uh, it's too hard to, to come and say, well, you know, we don't need to be doing these things. We don't need to be making an impact globally. Of course we do. I mean, I think people expect that the government is going to continue to have a role for Canada in the world and be present at those meetings. However, if he makes a more nuanced appeal to, hey, why don't we focus our attention on the domestic housing crisis before we get too involved in, you know, what's going on in other places, that might have a little bit more appeal. And maybe he's hoping that that's how the message falls on some people. I think, you know, he's looking at the polls like everybody else and thinking my party is somewhere between seven and 10 points ahead of the liberals. And it seems like for the conservatives to turn their chances into majority territory, they're wanting to pull Polyev over that line in terms of his own personal popularity so that he's not the liability when it comes to the conservatives doing well in the next election. Well, it's going to be interesting to see when they get back to work in the fall, of course, about just how this is going to roll out. Uh, the, the numbers uh, that we had predicted, or I guess the experts have predicted about inflation, et cetera, don't seem to be part of the uh, the solution here. They seem to still be part of the problem. Um, mm-hmm. And how these handle these new um, cabinet ministers handle this and how Mr. Polly responds uh, is going to be fascinating indeed. But you and I won't be talking about it, not on this uh, platform anyway. Uh, Laurie, I just want to take a minute now and, and thank you uh, for the great uh, participation and the insight that you've uh, provided for us over the years. It's always a pleasure. I look forward to Monday mornings and our conversations each and every day. And uh, I'm going to miss it, at least in the short term anyway. Thank you so much for all of this. I'm going to miss it too, Bill. I look forward to this every week. You are a class act. Thank you so much for everything that you do for everybody and explaining things as well as you do and being such a fun person to talk to. Thank you. Thank you, Laurie, uh, as always. Uh, and as I mentioned on my commentary this morning, this is not goodbye. This is until next time. And we'll find out when that next time is going to be so- shortly. Take care, Laurie. Bye. Dr. Laurie Turnbull uh, for the Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Things have heated up considerably south of the border as well uh, with talk about uh, the the Congress trying to impeach uh, President Joe Biden. But maybe more importantly, all eyes are on Georgia right now as Georgia prosecutors have uh, sent messages showing that uh, the Donald Trump team is behind the voting system branch. We are waiting for indictments and charges to be laid, and we're told that it's probably going to happen this week, possibly. Let's ask our next guest about that. He is Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. And and a welcome guest and uh, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Reggie, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Good morning, Bill. Let's uh, first of all talk about what's going on in Georgia. Uh, you know, uh, any of us, and I guess probably all of us one time or another, have heard that the tape of the phone call uh, with the, the, the then-President Trump and uh, the, the the attorney general from the, the state of, of Georgia about the election results. Uh, and you figure, well, it's slam dunk. It's it's over. I mean, that, that condemns them right then and there. But they seem to be taking their time. 
uh, before they put the case together. What, what are you hearing? What's the latest on that? Yeah, look, they're, they're taking their time, but it's because this is such a sprawling investigation in the state of Georgia. Bill spurned by, as you said, that phone call he had in order to find one extra vote to flip the election in his favor. But it goes far beyond that one phone call. It goes to um, what could potentially be a, a, a kind of organized bit of, of election interference by several players, both at the state level in Georgia and at the legal level uh, that were surrounding Donald Trump at the time. And that included an attempt uh, to kind of get into and an actual breach of uh, voting data systems. Uh, and there are allegations that Trump's legal team uh, kind of had their hands in the pots here trying to get other state officials to do things. And ultimately, um, it's resulted in a longer process, uh, but it is not going to result in any kind of uh, brushed aside uh, moment here. And, and experts that I've spoken to, legal people that I've spoken to in Georgia, uh, ultimately expect there to be some kind of movement with this indictment, possibly by tomorrow night or early Wednesday morning. And one of those charges, Bill, could be racketeering, which in Georgia uh, is a stronger statute than at the federal level. So while the federal indictments against the former president are severe, this state level indictment, especially when you compare it to the New York indictment, uh, could be just as severe, if not slightly more severe, based on the crimes that could potentially be charged at, uh, charged here. I mean, uh, when you look at, at the potential outcome here, and my understanding, though, from your reporting on this, Reggie, is if racketeering is one of those charges, and if, in fact, he's convicted on that, uh, I understand Georgia law states, that's a, a five, a, a, it's a mandatory five-year minimum sentence behind bars. Yeah, that's what's that's what's remarkable about the racketeering charges here in Georgia. I mean, look, racketeering, oftentimes we hear it having to do, you know, with mafia style crimes. But in Georgia, uh, there have been racketeering cases that even came up, um, you know, uh, uh, with an investigation that was into to the education system here. So this is something that the state has done before. It is a bigger uh, mandatory minimum for uh, for jail sentence. It's easier uh, than kind of just throwing a bunch of misdemeanors around. But what's more important about this Georgia investigation, other than, um, you know, the, the the attempts here to try and get to the bottom of, um, you know, an election fraud conversation that's been going on for years in the United States bill here, uh, is that in Georgia, if a conviction is found, whether it is against the former president, whether it's against anybody else who could be a part of these potential dozen indictments or more that we see, pardons in Georgia are not even left to the governor. Pardons in Georgia are left to a pardon board, and they cannot be considered until five years after the sentence has been completed. That is a remarkable moment to think about, because if Donald Trump happens to be convicted, but happens to win the presidency, he cannot be pardoned by himself or any other GOP president uh, and wouldn't be able to be pardoned until five years afterwards. There, there, there are some serious legal hurdles here that Trump and his legal team are going to have to navigate. Well, it also kind of, uh, I guess, deflates one of the arguments that the Trump team has always tried to maintain here, that uh, that this is Joe Biden weaponizing, uh, you know, the DOJ uh, to try to get his political enemy. Uh, this is this is coming from the state of Georgia, Republicans, by the way, in the state of Georgia, that, that are going after uh, and, and pursuing these 
uh, which I think probably underscores just how relevant this can be. And I can understand and now that in your reporting that they say they want to make sure that every I is dotted and every T crossed on this, because if you're going to go to this magnitude, uh, this this is this is this is the big time. I mean, this is going to get really really messy. I think for the longest time. And and uh, as as you've been reporting and I've been seeing some of the other interviews on the Sunday shows, Reggie, uh, Trump seems to be showing signs of cracking here. I mean, he's he's still pretty good with the bravado, you know, and 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 t- throwing the barbs. And we'll talk about that in a second. But he seems to be feeling the pressure right now. And he didn't seem to be like that five, six months ago. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, his Truth Social account just, you know, since early Monday morning has kind of blown up with a series of attacks again at the process and again at the judicial system and not at any of the problem kind of putting out there again, look, I didn't do anything wrong here. Everybody else was meddling in the election. You know, I didn't do anything except win the election. But, you know, again, what's remarkable about this is you have a Democratic district attorney in Fulton County in Fonnie Willis. And the people who are testifying, as you mentioned, are Republicans. And over the weekend on one of the Sunday shows on ABC, Gabriel Sterling from the Georgia Secretary of State's office, who is uh, one of the Georgia election officials, made the point of saying, look, we counted the ballots in Georgia three times. Donald Trump lost that state and he lost that election. Yet you have Trump this morning pushing back again, saying, I won the election. Other people are the ones who were tampering with it and meddling in the election. Whether that's a try to, you know, an attempt to try and and find a get out of jail free card in that I can blame this on my legal team or somebody else. That's one way to look at this. But at the end of the day, Trump is still peddling in these false claims that the election in 2020 was filled with fraud. And we're now seeing that there are consequences to what happens when you push that kind of messaging. How are they going to sort this out? Let's assume, as per your reporting, Reggie, that the that, that Georgia does move forward and, and you know charges are laid. Uh, of course, you'll have to do as he's done for the other indictments. Of course, show up uh, and be officially uh, arraigned in in some way, shape, or form. But who goes first here? Uh, is it uh, is it the New York State? Is it is it Jack Smith with what's going on with Mar-a-Lago and and a couple of other things? Is it Georgia? I mean, th- there's a lot of litigation at play here, and they can't all be happening at the same time. Yeah, it's a great question. And at the same time as litigation, there's also a campaign that the former president is trying to run. And there are only so many days on a calendar that can be used for one thing or the other. Look, I think at the end of the day, the federal trial here is going to potentially move quicker uh, for a variety of of different reasons. Number one, uh, the special counsel has asked for January 2nd uh, to start the D.C. case on the attempts to subvert the 2020 election. And you know, kind of hitting at Trump's messaging and and how he's speaking about this using some inflammatory rhetoric. The judge in D.C. has said, look, Trump, if you cross a line with what you say, that will be incentive for me to move this along quicker. So there is a real chance that we see a federal trial move up quicker. Uh, We know that the documents case in Florida is set for May, Georgia. Who knows what their timeline is going to be? Who knows if if the prosecution uh, is going to ultimately, you know, be able to lay this out quick enough to get it started before Christmas or if this goes into, you know, primary season. But that's why we say there are only so many days that you can go uh, and do so many things. And the more Donald Trump is tied up in court cases early next year during primary and caucus season, the less time he can spend on the campaign trail. Arguably, the more time it gives his his you know competitors in the race a chance to take up some of the oxygen that's that that, that he's kind of sucking up right now. 
but to that point, as as you mentioned, and that is one of the undercurrents and one of the, the subplots here, of course, is is he's running for the Republican nomination. He wants to be president again, uh, and that takes a lot of money. And I know that he has as has done a, a, as Trump has always done. Of course, the, the is rife with campaign donations to get that going. But he's using a lot of that money for his legal costs here. And, and Reggie, that's got to be draining it. Yeah, absolutely. It has. I mean, look, tens and tens of millions of dollars has been spent uh, by uh, by super PACs and by uh, political association campaigns that are, are affiliated with the former president, um, you know, to the tune of something like twenty four or twenty five uh, million dollars. And that is a lot of money. Sure. Look, Donald Trump has a lot of money and a lot of this becomes, uh, you know, self-financed in certain ways, one way or the other. But at a time when you see someone like Ron DeSantis chewing through the available money that he has and no longer able to secure donations from other donors. The fact that Trump alone uh, has seen his super PACs, you know, blow through, you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars. This is a big deal. This is a costly effort. And again, it raises that question as to what is the base ultimately going to think here when donations are are kind of perpetually solicited from them by the campaign, by the super PACs, and ultimately the money here isn't going to expanding the footprint across the United States for Donald Trump and his team. It's going to pay his legal bills to fight back on an election that he lost but still tries to tell people that he won. I mean, it, the messaging is all messed up. And it really gets in the way of of trying to you know clear the truth here with the people who are ultimately footing the bill for this. Uh, and and that that exploration for the truth is getting more and more difficult, I guess, Reggie, with the passage of time. Because on the other side of the street here, you've got the Republicans in the House uh, still talking about uh, impeachment hearings against Joe Biden. And I, I watched Jack Tapper the other day, uh, basically trying to drill one of the the Republican senators about that. Said, "What's what's he done wrong?" And they they, they throw out the you know the 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 hot button words like corruption. And this, he says, "What like what what corruption? Show me." Uh, and, and there don't seem to be any answers to that. But yet the, that that storyline still seems to persist. Well, sure, and it's and it's going to persist. I mean, number one. Republicans are essentially trying to impeach Joe Biden for the fact that Donald Trump was impeached by the House Democrats not once, but twice. Number two, Republicans are attempting to impeach Joe Biden because his son uh, is alleged by Republicans to be corrupt. And they're trying to say, well, look, corrupt son, corrupt father, corrupt father, corrupt Biden, corrupt Biden, corrupt president. If you try to follow the lines there, they may be difficult. That's the Republican talking point. So much so, Bill, that on Friday night, uh, Representative um, uh, Stubbe from Florida actually filed articles of impeachment against the former president on four different articles here of abuse of power and bribery and obstruction of justice and fraud and financial involvement in drug and prostitution. And what's remarkable, again, I've used that word so many times about talking about this, um, is that each and every article of impeachment that was filed against the former uh, against the sitting president all links back to his son, who is not an elected official here. So, I mean, Republicans are moving forward with this, whether it gets to the floor is one thing or another, but there's a real chance that that could happen by this fall, which would then kind of start to tie on, tie up and, and, and kind of chew into Biden's attempt to be on the campaign trail. If that were to happen, and that's a big if at this stage, though, uh, it, would it not be the simple same result that, that Trump underwent? In other words, the House might be able to impeach him. I think they probably have the votes to that, but not likely to be ratified in the Senate. So, I mean, it's, it's, it is what it is, but it's, it, it seems as if, as you say, it's really just tit for tat and it's more for show than anything else. 
Sure. And it really has kind of diminished what the initial intentions for impeachment were by the framers to go after a, a, a sitting elected official for high crimes and misdemeanors. Look, Trump was impeached for alleged efforts uh, and involvement in January 6th and for uh, a situation linked to a phone call with President Zelensky of Ukraine uh, and kind of a quid pro quo. Joe Biden, again, the, the article of impeachment here could be that his son uh, is allegedly corrupt. Sure, it's not going to pass in the Senate, but even in the House bill, it may not pass. There are a number of vulnerable Republicans who are in uh, Biden-held districts where if they go along with impeachment, that could put their seat on the line. So this is now going to be a difficult dance for Kevin McCarthy and for uh, for the kind of le party leadership to figure out, can they muster up enough votes if this goes to the floor to even get through the House, to even get an impeachment uh, to move forward. This could have damaging results long-term 2024 and after for House Republicans uh, if they don't kind of get their calculations done ahead of time. It's it's such a fluid situation. And 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 that's why we are so grateful, uh, first of all, for your reporting on this, of course, uh, in, down in, in the U.S. Capitol, uh, but also to serve through this. I mean, every time we talk, Reggie, on these these sessions, the subplots, the people behind the subplots, the implications of it's 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 a political soap opera. But, but that I, I almost hesitate to use that phrase because there's so much writing on this. I mean, we're talking about, the, you know, the, the most powerful nation in the world. And, and the internal bickering that's going on uh, in, in Washington these days is, is quite frightening. And as you say, this is all done uh, with the backdrop of the fact that these, in, in uh, well, November of 2024, they're going to have to vote in uh, a new Congress, a new president, et cetera. And, and uh, it's going to be last man standing, it looks like. Yeah. And look, ultimately, uh, at the end of the day here, for all of the conversations that we've had that have linked back to Donald Trump and kind of the, the craziness that it can, it can exist within the House, the impacts can, can exist and, and linger long after an election and far beyond the borders of the United States. Because again, there are so many countries around the world that still look to the U.S. Uh, as a beacon. Uh, and if, if that light is being dimmed or clouded, there are countries who can say, well, look, if the United States can do this, maybe we can do this as well. And there could be a damaging ripple effect based on the kind of nonsense that often comes out of uh, of the U.S. Capitol. I know that's a little bit editorial, but we have seen damaging effects of lies in this country and what can happen in the spillout effect uh, around the world. And I think that's why you're seeing so many lawmakers from both sides who are trying to say, look, we need to stop doing this. We need to kind of get back to a Washington that used to exist where it was a bit mundane, but it was far less problematic far less, you know, political in the terms of 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 kind of pointed politicalness. Um, but at the end of the day, until that happens, I mean, the U.S. is going to do what it's going to do. And it's up to the rest of the world to say, look, maybe we shouldn't be like that. Exactly. Well, uh, we have come over the years to uh, to depend on you, Reggie, for uh, first of all, the truth, but also to, I, I love it. Uh, please editorialize more. That, that's the part of the joy of, of having these discussions with you. Uh, it's always been a highlight for me to have you on the program to talk about this. Uh, you're so good at your job. Uh, and so, first of all, you know, well-informed because of the work that you do and and the the input that you put in and the contributions you make to the show. So as, as we finish off uh, in about 40 minutes here for the last time on this radio station anyway, thank you for all that you've done. Uh, you know, we're, we're not... Uh, going away. Will you be someplace else on another platform? And I look forward to our discussions about this and many other political things down the road. But thank you, Reggie. Thank you, Bill. It has been a pleasure to, to join you for, for the last couple of years on Mondays and, and whenever the news breaks. We're always here. 
Take care. Okay. Thank Reggie Cicchini from Global News, of course, in the U.S. Capitol. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. So here we are uh, into the home stretch uh, for the very last time. And uh, before the curtain goes down on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML and CFPL, a couple of observations and, and some closing comments, if I could. Uh, first of all, a heartfelt thank you to to the plethora of, of people who have given comments on, posted them on social media, emails, phone calls. Uh, poor Alicia in the studio has been just inundated with calls, and that's a good thing. Thank you so much. Uh, as have I over the last uh, number of days, actually, as uh, the news leaked out about this. And uh, it's it's heartwarming to get that kind of feedback. Deeply touched by the outpouring of support uh, for the show. And uh, I cherish the bond that we've developed over these past 17 years uh, doing the show and sharing our thoughts, you and I, as uh, residents of this community and concerned people in this community. And uh, I, I will never forget you. I'm, I'm proud of each and every one of those moments. Now, there are three groups of people I think I want to pay some special attention to if I could. Uh, first of all, to my family. Uh, I couldn't do this job day in and day out without the ongoing support and encouragement from my family. And my wife, Rebecca Wizens, of course, and people in this community, you know, she dedicates 24 hours a day to running a successful law firm in Hamilton. But she also shares a deep passion for our community and its people. And her perspectives about the key issues of the day are invaluable in me doing my work. And her support uh, is unwavering. And that means so much to me. And on that point, by the way, likewise, our children all have a seemingly insatiable appetite for news and opinion. wonder where they got that from. And they are always more ready, willing, and able to be part of these discussions that we have. Uh, sometimes it gets pretty spirited, often entertaining, but always enjoyable when we have these discussions about the key issues of the day. And while I'm on the topic of, uh, of family support, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, talk about our family dog, Eliza. Uh, for these last three years that we've been broadcasting remotely, uh, she has been by my side each and every day. No, you don't hear her. She doesn't make noise. She's She's an avid listener, and uh, she's been here offering moral support, okay, and sleeping. Okay, mostly sleeping, but still offering moral support, and uh, she's she's a big part of that. She just perked her ears up when I mentioned her name. Okay, so there you go. I, I couldn't do this, this show at all without the love and support of my family, and I love you all, and thank you for that. Now, to my radio family, uh, the folks that I work with every day to produce this program, and, and we hope it has been insightful and engaging to, to you, the audience. Uh, at the top of that list, if I could for a minute here, I want to talk about my former boss now, Jeff Story, uh, who is such a big part of my career. Jeff possesses this rare combination in management of being a, a, a broadcast genius. He knows the business. He knows how to, to make the business work for the community and at the same time has great empathy for his employees. Working with him has been a pleasure. And uh, I can tell you, if this industry that we're in uh, is to survive, it needs more managers like Jeff Story. And when they get to realize that, they're all going to be the better for it. And, and some of the other great broadcasters uh, to, who I've worked with here, Rick Zamprin, that we heard earlier in the show, uh, Paul Tipple, Shona Thompson, as well as a, an incredible all-star lineup of co-workers and, and hosts on this program. They are not just co-workers to me. They are cherished friends. And those bonds are everlasting, too. I've been blessed with some incredible producers over the years and so fortunate to have worked with uh, two of the best um, in the last number of years uh, when it comes to talk shows. Jordan Armanis and Alicia Vieira 
have been solid and rocks and incredible contrib contributors to the success that we've enjoyed. Nobody does it better than these two professionals, and they've played a, a large role in our show's success. And lastly, and most importantly, well, thanks to you, our radio audience. In these extraordinary times in which we live, we need to share and respect each other's ideas and opinions, and, and we've tried to do that for the last 17 years on this show. And all our efforts day after day are to inform you, to entertain you, and to give you a voice that needs to be heard on the issues that matter to all of us. It has been an honor and a privilege to have those conversations. Uh, our platform at CHML is ending, but we are not going away. I'm not retiring, but you are going to continue that dialogue. And until that day, and after the work that we've done here, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your support, and thank you for having a, a great, great desire to find the truth. We'll see you next time. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.